Hello, 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 and welcome to another segment of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohegan people who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm your host, H. Bosch Jr. And, and I'm your other host, Vinnie Polito. Today, <laughs> today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Willie Terry's interview with Larry Whitner about the upcoming 40th anniversary celebration of the Solidarity Committee of the Capitol District. Then we have Mark Dunley's profile of Democrat and Working Families Party candidate for Troy Mayor, Nina Nichols. Later on for this week's Triple E's, H. Boss Jr. interviews Cora Schroeder, uh, Senior cons uh, Constituent Representative Manager for Congress Member Paul Tonko. After that, Elizabeth E.P. Press profiles Republican candidate for Troy City Council President Brad Lewis. And finally, Andrea Cunliffe interviews Barry Schiffman of the Banff Inf International String Quartet Competition. But first, here are the headlines. Okay, and I just want to say <clears throat> welcome to all of our listeners, Albany, Troy, Schenectady, and beyond. We have a great show coming. Um, headlines, Schenectady General Services Commissioner Paul LaFord was reappointed to his post earlier this year by the mayor, even though he failed the civil service test, a requirement mm. of the job he's held for nearly eight years. However, the mayor says he has no plans to remove LaFond. The Times Union reports that an international grievance system for those held in the state's correctional facilities has failed to garner trust or address many of the complaints inmates have with their living conditions, according to a report from the agency tasked with monitoring New York's jails and prisons. El Loco Mexican Cafe. I had to say, say that with a little accent. El Loco <laughs> Mexican Cafe. The city of Albany's oldest Mex Mexican restaurant turned 40 on October 1st and is celebrating the anniversary throughout the month with food and drink specials. How about that? A group of farm owners are suing in federal court against part of the state's farm worker bill of rights. They are challenging whether H-2A workers, temporary foreign uh, workers contracted through a federal program, have the right to unionize. They assert that having H-2A workers in unions on their farms could place them in conflict with federal law and therefore could risk their ability to hire workers. Okay, in European Climate Agency reports that September set a new record for how high temperatures were above normal. The scientists described the record heat as mind-blowing. Another scientist described it as a death sentence for people in ecosystems. And more than 100 state legislative candidates have registered for a new state public mar uh, matching funds program that helps boost small campaign donations. However, a bill that has been sent to the governor would dramatically change the program to benefit incumbents. The number of donors needed to qualify for the program would be increased, and the donations from large donors would now be matched. And that's it okay, for the headlines. Okay, rapid-fire headlines. And now we turn to the news bucket and roaming labor correspondent, Willie Terry, 
in his interview with Larry Whitman to, Whitmer to discuss the upcoming Solidarity Committee of the Capital District's upcoming 40th anniversary celebration on Saturday, October 20 or October 7th, 2023 at St. Andrew's Episcopal Church and other solidarity labor activities and issues. Seems like everybody's turning 40. Wow. <laughs> this is Willie Terry, your Roman labor correspondent for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Today, I have on the phone Larry Whitner, who's a member of the Solidarity Committee of the Capital District. Uh, how you doing, Larry? Uh, I'm fine. I'm All right. fine. All right. And Larry, I just do want to say that I did not know a whole lot about you, but I did when I went online to get more information. Larry, I found that you got a whole lot of stuff on, on there. And you are a scholar, you're a writer, and you're an activist. And I didn't know you had wrote that many books and articles. So I just want to say that uh, maybe one day I could just sit down and just interview you. <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> sure. sure. So you got so much uh, information, you know, to put out. So, Larry... Uh, why don't you just give a, a brief overview of Solidarity Committee? You know, how they got started, what's happening today? With sure. Well, uh, the uh, Solidarity Committee got, got going in uh, 1983 at the time that the Amalgamated uh, Transit Workers Union was uh, striking against the uh, Greyhound Corporation. And... Um, uh, in downtown Albany, that there was a major uh, Greyhound terminal. Up to that point, uh, the local labor movement here in the Capital District was rather stodgy. Uh, individual unions uh, stuck up for their own members, but there wasn't much uh, solidarity shown, uh, at least in recent years, uh, by the 1980s. And, 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 of course, the labor movement was under attack uh, increasingly uh, from the Reagan administration. So... In the, in the context of this uh, Greyhound strike of 1983, uh, a number of labor activists, union members, got together and they, they formed the uh, Greyhound uh, Strikers uh, Solidarity Committee as we wanted to, to uh, support them uh, from all the local unions. And uh, beyond that, to um, uh, stir up uh, support for them, that is, uh, for the workers, uh, Greyhound um, Strikers, uh, from the general community. So uh, we did that. Uh, the strike was actually won. There was a, a mass picket line in front of the terminal. We blocked the buses being, being uh, driven or uh, tried to be driven by uh, scab drivers at that time, uh, strike breakers. And we actually uh, helped to win the strike. And out of that uh, successful effort for the uh, Greyhound strikers, um, came the Solidarity Committee of the Capital District. That is, um, we felt that uh, we should uh, stay together and continue this kind of uh, union solidarity work. And so we, we uh, started raising uh, some money to uh, put out a monthly newsletter called Solidarity Notes. And people uh, from different unions also uh, contributed articles to that as well as information uh, about uh, their own unions or about other uh, labor struggles for decent contracts, 
for uh, union authorization drives. Um, and uh, uh, we became a major force here in the uh, capital district uh, for the labor movement, uh, for social justice, for environmental sustainability, for, um, for uh, human rights. You're having an anniversary this year, and this is mm -hmm. the 40th anniversary of the Capital District Solidarity Committee. So y'all been in existence for 40 years. That's right. Right. Um, let me get into the anniversary, the 40th anniversary. Tell, sure. tell, tell us something about the 40th anniversary. Well, uh, we've been doing this uh, 40 years, and uh, uh, many, <laughs> many of us are uh, growing older. Uh, and occasionally we have anniversary uh, celebrations. We did one, I believe, for our uh, 30th uh, anniversary. And so we decided uh, to do one for our 40th. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so on October 7th, uh, um, this coming October, uh, starting at 6 p.m. and running uh, uh, through roughly 8.30 p.m., we're going to hold our uh, 40th anniversary uh, celebration at uh, St. Andrew's Episcopal Church at 10 North Main Avenue uh, in Midtown, Albany. Um, uh, we're going to um, um, have live music uh, by the folk musician George Mann, um, who's a member, of course, of the Musicians Union and of the IWW. We're going to have a, a free uh, potluck dinner. We're going to be showing a video that's been uh, put together by Jim Kaufman of the uh, Postal Workers Union on the history of the Solidarity uh, Committee, uh, showing many of the uh, struggles we've engaged in over the past 40 years and many of the people in, involved in those, in those struggles, uh, showing us and uh, showing other workers on the picket line or at demonstrations. It's a, a, a potluck dinner. It's uh, free of charge. The uh, Solidarity Committee is going to uh, supplement um, uh, potluck dishes, uh, home-cooked potluck dishes, with um, food that it's going to be uh, providing, and also uh, beverages. So uh, I think it, it should be a, a interesting uh, event. Oh, and we're going to have uh, speakers, of course, right. people yeah. <laughs> uh, who are actually in, in, involved in, in many of those uh, struggles of the past, uh, starting with the Greyhound uh, Strikers of 1983 and going on to the uh, present. So I think it'll be a, a good time for reminiscences for those who are involved in, in, in many of those struggles, as well as for others uh, who didn't know about them, but might, uh, might want to uh, learn about them uh, from people who are actually involved in them. So this will be a good time for anybody who uh, wanted to get more information about Solidarity to come to the Oh, absolutely. Event. Yes. Yeah. Any, anybody who wants to, to uh, support the working class and its uh, struggles, wants to more uh, broadly uh, speak out for social justice, and for uh, for world peace um, and for environmental sustainability is welcome to attend. And once more, it, it's an event that's free of charge. But I do want to get into uh, some updates about what's happening with Solidarity in terms of what they're doing and some of the activities they're involved in. So I'm just going to ask you, what are some of the issues 
uh, that solidarity is involved in. You know, I know you put out a newsletter uh, every month, and it has a lot of information in it. Yeah, well, aside from the newsletter, um, which is uh, free, by the way, uh, uh, very few uh, publications are, are, are mailed uh, to people uh, free of charge. We've been doing that for uh, 40 years now um, and uh, mailing it out through the, the uh, postal mail. Um, well, we've, we've done a great number of things, and we uh, continue uh, doing that. Um, we hosted an annual uh, Labor Day picnic, which was designed to uh, bring, bring members of local unions and union uh, supporters uh, together. And we give out uh, awards for uh, uh, outstanding uh, union and uh, social justice activities uh, around the Capital District. Um, we have uh, speakers uh, from unions, uh, sometimes unions that are on strike, at other times, uh, unions that are uh, struggling for um, uh, to be recognized. Um, we uh, support union uh, picket lines. Um, uh, uh, Doug Bullock, for many years, has has led the chance uh, for us on on uh, picket lines. Um, we um, um, we've held um, an annual. Um, uh, Martin Luther King and the Labor Movement uh, celebration. And Steve, you've been a part of that yourself. Um, and we uh, <clears throat> and we would highlight the connections between the labor movement and the uh, struggle for racial justice. <clears throat> and uh, of course, King died uh, organizing the uh, sanitation workers in in uh, Memphis into uh, a union. And so we wanted to keep up that kind of uh, connection. I think we helped to do that. We also ran a, a film series uh, on, on films that were uh, related to the labor movement and to social justice more, more broadly. That was uh, pretty much brought to an end, unfortunately, by the uh, uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic. We also uh, ran uh, uh, labor, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, May Day uh, events May 1st was a, a traditional day uh, of worker protest in the United States ever since the late 19th century and the uh, struggle for the eight-hour day. So uh, we revived those uh, celebrations on May Day, and we held them on an annual basis. That was Hudson Mohawk Magazine roaming correspondent Willie Terry talking with Larry Whitmer, a member of the Solidarity Committee of the Capital District. Nina Nichols is a Democrat Working Families Party candidate for mayor in the city of Troy. She is a Rensselaer County legislator and former Troy City Council member. She discussed solid waste, lead pipes, and public safety issues with Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. As part of our election watch coverage. Uh, we are talking with uh, Nina Nichols, who is the uh, Democrat and Working Families Party candidate for uh, mayor in the uh, city of Troy. Uh, she is uh, presently a Rensselaer County legislator and previously has been on the uh, Troy uh, City Council. So um, thank you, Nina, for coming on and, and maybe just start off about uh, a little bit about your background you'd like to share and why should you be mayor of the city of Troy? Sure. Um, thank you, Mark, for having me on. 
Um, I am Mina Nichols. I'm a wife, a mother of three children who grew up in Troy, attended Troy High School and are now off in college. I've spent my life committed to community and public service and advocacy for what is good, right, and just. The last 10 plus years, I've been at Unity House in development and advocacy, helping connect individual private foundations and corporate donors to opportunities for making life better for people who are struggling. This involves a lot of developing partnerships and pursuing grants. A part of my work also includes advocating for the human services workforce, affordable childcare, and affordable supportive housing. I've served on many, many local boards, most recently as president of the Oakwood Community Center Board. I was on the Troy City Council in 2012 and successfully wrote or advanced legislation to improve the quality of life for our residents, support small businesses, and move us toward a greener, more sustainable future. As you said, I am a, currently a Rensselaer County legislator serving on the Veterans and Youth, Health, and Planning and Tourism Committee. I'm running for Troy Mayor because I love the city and I think it can be better. I'm a thoughtful, collaborative leader who believes in building a shared vision for our great city and implementing the plans to bring that vision to life. I am very grateful for this opportunity and look forward to hearing some of the questions that you think your listeners are most interested in. Well, I understand you also have a background on environmental issues, actually on, on climate. And I, I know that the lead pipe replacements have been a big issue. And uh, I guess at the recent debate, there was some uh, discussion about how to improve both general garbage, but recycling. So do you want to maybe lay out some of your key environmental concerns for the city? Sure. The lead service line replacement program is, of course, of highest importance to many, many of the voters throughout the city of Troy. Um, I am committed to moving forward full force with getting those replaced as quickly as possible and I'm committed to doing that within my first term. In order to do that, we are going to have to access as much state and federal funding as possible. Um, that's not something I'm waiting to go after once I am elected mayor. That's something that I've already been actively trying to do through the minority party in the Rensselaer County Legislature, going to the Capitol and um, asking for the governor to release funds that they have so that we can do this. And that was an, a successful push. Um, I also support the plan to go ahead and bond um, a significant pot of money so that we will have it available and can run that program as efficiently and effectively as possible. Um, I do wanna say that my opponent was on the city council at the time that we received the money that was in the paper um, and so widely shared. And then through budgeting processes over all of the years from then until now, that has been available and marked for this purpose and is really a failure on both the administration and the council and council leadership's part not to do more to educate the citizens of Troy about the exposure that um, was happening, particularly those most vulnerable Trojans, our youngest children, and then um, either coming up with our own plan or um, adopting one of the many from other municipalities who received this funding to move forward and begin the process of replacing lead service lines. Um, so that is certainly a, a concern of mine, and I am committed to, um, to getting that done and getting the lead out. Um, you also brought up climate change. I do have um, both personal investment in um, lowering our um, carbon footprint here in our household. 
Um, the municipal composting program is one of the things that we've spoken a lot about in the various debates that have come up. Um, come up. We know that when we remove um, that food from our waste stream, it both, both reduces our tipping fees, but also ensures that that methane doesn't um, add to the greenhouse gas emissions that are um, we know now and can see most vividly after the hottest summer ever and after the fires that have been happening in Canada that impact our air quality um, are, are causing problems right here um, for the people in Troy. So I would go after the grant funds that it would take to stand that program back up again. I would make a municipal investment in getting um, uh, as many Trojans who want to participate, composting buckets and bags um, while we're standing up the program, finding additional spots for people to be able to um, deliver their composting, but then working to have a full municipal composting um, pickup program. Now, um, police is an issue that uh, seems to have a lot of uh, different thoughts in the uh, city of Troy. A couple of years ago, more than 10,000 uh, people uh, rallied in the city uh, as part of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, others have been concerned about what they see as a high rate of, of, of crime, and um, particularly in some of the places like uh, North Troy, North Central Troy. And then also recently, a young um, father was killed when the police, um, you know, ran a traffic light at 15th and Hoosick Street. Um, so, what are some of your thoughts about? Um, you know, what, what type of police agenda would you have? Well, so I'll talk about a police agenda, but I want to frame it in the um, with the understanding that what we need is a robust public safety agenda, um, a more holistic plan for the way to have a safer Troy, which I am here at the doors. I know firsthand is a, a of course, um, an important, um, significant, maybe the most important thing that we can do for our city is to ensure that all Trojans feel safe and are safe. Um, so I would fully staff, train, and equip both our police and fire departments, recognizing that they're going to be the cornerstone of our public safety um, plan. I've also talked about um, engagement with those um, conditions that help to breed crime and allow it to flourish. So our code enforcement department has been seriously understaffed for many years. Um, all of our departments across the city are, but that one in particular touches on so many of our public safety concerns. For example, um, in our vacant buildings, that's a place for bad actors to set up shop. Um, it's where a lot of drug activity happens. And so I'm committed to hiring a director of code enforcement that understands how to run a successful code department and filling the vacancies that are there putting in place a dedicated staff person to address what's happening with our vacant buildings, ensuring that they're inventoried, um, making sure that they're buttoned up so that um, some of that crime can't be happening there. Um, I'm also committed to um, having the staff in place to run a residential occupancy permit program that will protect our renters. Um, proactively and intentionally and on a schedule inspect all rental units in the city of Troy. Um, a lot of times when we are not looking at what's happening in these rental units, that's another place where crime can flourish and certainly where renters are put in harm's way um, by the conditions that they live in. We also recognize that a lot of our um, crime that's been happening in Troy is youth involved. And one of the ways to combat that is to ensure that we have 
um, many opportunities for our youth to engage in recreational opportunities, athletic opportunities, artistic opportunities, to make sure that they're in um, some of our community-based programs that um, provide opportunities for mentoring and support. And then as our youth are getting older to ensure that there are pathways to good paying jobs. Um, specifically on some of the concerns that you raise around policing, um, it is essential that the people of Troy um, feel safe and in good relationship with our, our law enforcement that is sworn to protect us. And so when there are issues that come up, I'm committed to speaking to them and to ensuring that the appropriate training is happening and that the appropriate accountability is reflected in taking place. So we only have about 45 seconds left. So uh, people want more information about your campaign. How do they do it? And any 30 seconds, other issues you'd like to least mention? Um, I am committed to a safer, cleaner, greener Troy, a better Troy for all of us. Um, I want to advance Troy's growth while preserving our character. And I would look forward to having ongoing conversations with any listeners about any of the things that I've spoken about or other issues of concern. And you can reach me through my socials that are on my website, ninanichols.net. Nina Nichols, Democrat, Working Families Party candidate for mayor of the city of Troy. And this is Election Watch for the Hudson Mohawk uh, Magazine. Um, Mark Dunlay. For more information on local elections and issues, you can check out our Election Watch coverage on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag and on our website at mediasanctuary.org. Boy, did you hear how Mark put a little accent in his voice? Mark Dunley. <laughs> I thought that was nice. Uh, for those of you just tuning in, I'm your host, H. Bosch Jr. And I'm your host, Vinny Polito. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. All right, here we go. One of my favorite segments on Thursdays. I'm a little biased, but I must say <laughs> uh, the Triple E segment. Okay, today's guest on the this week's Triple E segment, Education, Empowerment, Entrepreneurship, is Cora Schroeder. Cora comes to us today as Senior Consultant Representative Manager for Congress Member Paul Tonko's 20th Cong Congressional District. She is a highly educated woman who is a tenacious self-starter, self able to handle multiple projects with excellent results. She holds an MBA and is also CEO and founder of a renowned public speaking company called C. Schroeder Public Speaking. Ms. Schroeder, welcome to the Triple E's family. Thank you. What a wonderful introduction, Bosch. Thank you. Well, I hope you you're are well. so, so welcome. And we are we are honored and privileged to uh, have you. So uh, let me just uh, dig right in. Uh, sure. Where are you from and where did you grow up? Yes. So I'm from here, the capital region. 
Capital Region of New York, born and raised in Schenectady. Uh, grew up half and half, as it were. So I grew up half in Niskayuna uh, and then half in Schenectady, the city of Schenectady. Okay, okay. Um, so what is it like um, working in a field with so few minorities? <laughs> That's an excellent question. Thank you for that. It's, it's, uh, it's interestingly wonderful. Right. So it's interesting, wonderful, because you in in my mind and I have to make it personal because it's different for everyone. So in my mind, I go every day thinking that I am there to leave a difference and make a difference. Mm -hmm. Right. And I know that difference comes internally for me, knowing that I need to, if you will, to use the Norman culture, represent. Mm -hmm. But then externally, I know that people with no ill intent whatsoever, they are looking at me to find a comfortable spot with a minority, to learn from a minority, or and even to just learn from a minority. And mm. I think that in there is what makes it very unique. The one thing that I will add, though, is, you know, it's it's not... Uh, it's not a good thing to bring the negative approach that I'm the only, I'm the only, right? Use it as a time for learning, teaching, and living. Okay. Um, I, in my research, um, I uncovered you are a renowned and sought after speaker. So um, let's talk about empowering people. And I want to start with sure. people of color, and then we'll move to women and all people. All right. So sure. um, lean into that for me. Yes. And the, I'm sorry, Bosh, say again, the first one of that um, is empowering people of people of color. in general. Yep. People of color. And then we mm -hmm. want to lean into, we want to talk about women. Then we'll talk about all people. Because like I said, um, yes. in my research, I um, uncovered you are a sought after renowned <laughs> Thank you. Uh, public speaker. Thank you. So yes, empowering and empowerment, right? And of people of color. So we need to go back some in history. So where this comes from, first and foremost, people of color are, have the ability to empower themselves. We have been giving this unforeseen gift where we now can really grab the fruit and, and take it and take a bite out of it and make us powerful from it. So how does that work? I think the first thing is for us, as people of color to know our history. We need to understand from whence we came, but not to look at it in a negative light, not to look at it as a downtrodden, because we survive, we're still here. Through that the horrors and the horrible history, we are still here, we are prospering every day. So right. that in itself can be one of the fruits pulled from the tree of empowerment is to know that we are here and we are moving forward. The other, the another fruit is where we know ourselves to be strong, intellectual people who can do anything we want. It has, it matters not who we want. If we look back again in history, and I, I love history, so forgive me if I keep bringing up history. But if we look back in history, we can see all of these wonderful people of color who did things, invented things. Now, it may not be easy to find because, as we know, history is 
written by those who want to perceive themselves as the doers and winners. Mm -hmm. But so empowering, empowering people of color is first and foremost, understand who you are and love who you are and take that and find something in there that you can go and move forward on. It doesn't have to be huge. It can be something that you enjoy, but what you do with it, that in itself empowers you. Okay. So what I want to do, I want to get two more questions in before we run out of time. One yes. is, um, uh, is education important? Cause I, you know, I talk to that. Yes. Education is extremely important, but I would need to then define what I mean by education. So education is whenever you take on something that you did not know and you now know it. So, and there are many different forms of education. You can like go that. to academia, you can go to college, you can get the degrees. That is a beautiful and wonderful way to be educated. Or you can become a journeyman in a trade. You know, you can become a journeyman as a plumber and do the best that you can do and learn from it. Everything that you do has a foundation which can be learned. And then you just, if you will, envision building from it. You can learn by being an avid reader and, and a beautiful artist. So again, anything that you do under the auspice of learning is that you keep it going. You That's keep fueling answer. yourself with knowledge. That in itself answer. is education. So um, what have been some of your obstacles and how did you overcome them? <laughs> we don't have enough time for all my obstacles, Bosh. All right. But I think some of my ob obstacles. Real that quick. Have, <laughs> real quick. Uh, yeah. People seeing me and thinking that I was something else. Mm -hmm. right? People stereo stereotyping me. So that's been an obstacle. How did I overcome it? pretty much by what I was just saying in, in our previous uh, conversation and with your questions. I empowered myself. I knew that I could do it. I put hard work in doing things and I gave myself that vitamin B shot of wonderment every day and went forward. I love that. So, um, Ms. Cora, how can uh, people reach you? Yes. Currently, right now, I'm rebuilding my website so they can reach me at on my email directly. It's Cora. C-O-R-A dot Schenectady, as in the city, S-C-H-E-N-E-C-T-A-D-Y at gmail.com. And they'll get me directly and we will have a wonderful conversation and move forward as they like. Great. I just want to say, Ms. Cor, it was a plum pleasing pleasure having you <laughs> as a guest today on the uh, Triple E's and um Continue to make the world a better place. All right. God bless you. And may heaven Thank continue you, to smile upon you and each and everything you do. Thank you. You as well. Do take care. Thank you so much. We appreciate Have a wonderful it. evening. Bye-bye. You too. And now uh, Republican candidate Brad Lewis is running for Troy City Council president against Democrat Sue Steele. Sue currently represents the District 3 in Troy City Council, and Brad is a local entrepreneur. Elizabeth E.P. Press sat down with Brad Lewis in our studio for this interview. Today we're talking with Brad Lewis, who is running for City Council President. Welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Hello. Thank you very much for having me today. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about who you are I'm a business owner here in the city. I grew up in Troy. I went to Troy High. Me and my wife live on the east side. 
I studied at St. Rose. I got my MBA in finance, um, financial planning and small business and entrepreneurship. I used that to propel my own small business. And then I started another one in real estate. So I have one business in masonry and hardscape construction and another one in um, real estate where we bought and rehab foreclosed homes in the city and use them. Uh, we have them as tenants uh, occupy them. So we created housing. So I've done 14 houses in the city. Um, currently, I only manage 22 apartments, meaning that um, we've sold a couple houses or I helped other people rehab their houses. I serve on the board of Hope 7 as a treasurer. I was president in the past. I was vice president as well. I serve with a lot of great people. Thanks for sharing a little bit about yourself. So you are running for uh, city council president as the Republican candidate against Sue Steele, who is currently on the city council. Maybe some of our audience doesn't really know what city council president is. So sure. uh, what is this role? And can you just tell us a little bit about why you're running for city mm -hmm. council president in Troy? Yeah, so president's one of the seven council members. They lead the regular meeting and the finance meeting as well. I actually think that's kind of nice because leading a finance meeting is sort of right up my alley, given that my background's in finance. That's what I went to school for. Unfortunately, I um, graduated right after the financial bubble burst in 09, so I went, it went into construction and housing instead. But, you know, finance is my background, and financial planning and that sort of thing is uh, what I went to school for. So I think leading the finance meeting, leading the regular meeting, and also setting the tone of the city and I mean, quite frankly, there's going to be a lot of times when people want to interview the president and they want somebody that's going to be the, the leader of the council to sort of give their take on what's happening from the legislative side. Great. Why are you running for this position? Yeah, so right now, you know, I've been a lifelong resident of Troy. And so for me, I've just seen so many things that are just lost it by the wayside. And I have got to a point in my life where I have enough time and energy to give back to the city instead of, you know, continuing on the path that I'm on. I didn't really want to be in construction. I wanted to be in finance. That's what I went to school for, but all external circumstances leading, that's what my path went down. But right now, I think this is something good that I can get back. That's my perspective, that I can, you know, sort of fuel my soul in terms of being able to give back, help people, help the city, the city I love. Um, and from the external perspective, I think the city needs a fresh perspective because right now I think the morale is really low in City Hall. I think there's a lot of um, just struggle for people to understand like why they can't get city services. And also there lacks a little bit of creativity on some of the things that I think are important issues in the city. Okay, we'll get into those in a minute. The city council has like a reputation of... Uh, at this point in time, introducing legislation on behalf of the administration. Um, if you are leading the city council as city council president, how will you hold the administration accountable? That's a great question. One of the problems I think the city has is um, the city council doesn't have access to an attorney that can write their legislation. So they have to kind of wait. I mean, in, right now they're waiting on Rick Morrissey to write any legislation they want him to. And if he's too busy or we're understaffed, they don't, they get put in the order that, he, I don't know, maybe he de determines is appropriate. So they don't have any like unbiased person that they can just say, hey, would you do this for me? They have to wait. And, and Rick Morrissey, I believe, is 
appointed by the administration. So they're very intermingled. I think that if they would have an attorney that would work with the city council, if necessary, that would help a lot. I mean, but there is, if you're looking at percentage-wise, there is a need for the mayor to introduce the legislation, generally speaking. So there's going to be a high percentage of just transactional things that have to get pushed through. But I think there's so many more opportunities for city council to um, sort of direct the mayor and what they see and what they're hearing from their constituents by introducing legislation that sort of, it might be a little bit pro-conflict, but it actually can sort of force the administration to comply with the laws that the citizens actually would like to see. So it would be great to sort of be a little more um, informative back to the mayor instead of getting all your direction one way. It checks and balances, really. Great. And having said that, one area where the current city council has been trying to push back is related to what happened with Harbor Point Gardens. You've been at a lot of the hearings. I've seen you there. Harbor Point, where, you know, over 100 people were evacuated from their apartments due to a variety of code infringements. Uh, So I'm just curious if you are in this position and you know there's probably more Harbor Points out there, what could the council do to sort of mitigate this problem citywide? Yeah, so definitely in order to solve Harbor Point before it becomes a homeless crisis, like what, 58 families are homeless? It's just, it's unacceptable, really. In order to do that, you have to start hitting people with code violations as the violations happen. Now, of course, that's the code department, and they're led by the director of code, which is a vacant you know, position, and they're, that's led by the engineer, which is a vacant position, who's then led by the deputy mayor, who maybe has too much on his plate, meaning that he's absorbing three positions right there. I think that one of the things I'd like to see is all those positions filled. I'd also like to see our sort of self-esteem in the city change I think we've been a little lax on code enforcement because we're afraid of people ditching our city, so to speak. But I think people want to be here. And I, I invested you know, in 14 buildings in the city because I believe that people want to be here. And I believe in good housing. You know, I, I was awarded a preservation award from the historic um, Albany F- Foundation in Albany for the work I've done preserving properties. So when I look at them, I look at them like how good can they be, not what's the bare minimum you can do in order to extract money out of them. So personally, I think that we need to encourage the code enforcement officers to not be so gun shy. If they can get ahead of Harbor Point and say, hey, these bricks are going now, we need to create a plan, there doesn't need to be a shut it down order. So I think from a city council perspective, you can write codes, but also you have to do some encouraging. And from encouragement perspective, sometimes that is going to the news and saying, hey, look, we're trying, but you can see it, you know. Thanks for that. There's been this phrase that has been tossed around related to code and related to Harbor Point, which is the residential occupancy Mm -hmm. permit. Could you just say a little bit about what this is and whether you Mm -hmm. think uh, Troy needs to introduce residential occupancy permits to address this sort of code issue? Yes, yes. So um, residential occupancy permit, where every time you have a turnover in an, uh, in an apartment, they would then go in and inspect to make sure the apartment is safe. I'm for that from probably three units and above, and I'm undecided at two and three units. A single family, I'd probably be against it be- because obviously that would be every time a house is sold and bought. And 
but a two and three units, I, th- I could see there being some problems with some older homes in the city where you might have some big catastrophic problems. I think to start out anything over three, I would really like to see that happen. I'd be pro a residential occupancy program and sort of saying, like, call it a multiple, multiple family or maybe even three. Three, I'm on the fence. Two, I'm definitely on the fence, but over three, I'm so pro it's not even funny i would i would love to like have these people have to they have to get the um permit because if they do then you know that the apartments are safe and people aren't going to be thrown out like this and on top of that these are when you're getting to four units and above you're totally talking about investors you're not talking about you know my great aunt down the street or you know Somebody has lived there their whole lives and they're kind of forced with the housing stock. Most of these places were built to make money. And because of that, they need to bear the cost, the burdens of being a manager of that property. I think you answered my next question somewhat, but this difference between over three units versus like one to two units Mm. and how you have a varying uh, opinion about what the residential Mm. occupancy permit. And I was just wondering, you know, does that hurt small landlords? Is that why you're against it? Or like why why be against it for like that level of check uh, for smaller buildings? So to clarify, I'm not against it yet. Oh, okay. And I'm not Sorry. pro for it yet uh-huh. because I, I feel like I need time to digest how that affects those people. Because I think, I guess I have a little bit of compassion for somebody who owns a two family that might maybe owner occupied, you know? So there's a spectrum of, of rules that could apply to that. I think first thing first, we need to start forcing landlords to register their buildings and out of area landlords to be forced. I mean, this is already law, but we need to force it is out of out of area landlords are supposed to have somebody within 30 miles registered, which would then give you somebody that you can call up and say, solve this problem. But right now we don't enforce that. So, Great. Thanks for going a little bit further into that, Brad. And we are quickly running out of time. So mm-hmm. I just want to uh, make sure I give you, you know, the last space here. What would you like our audience to know about you? What is sort of like your elevator pitch mm-hmm. for our mm-hmm. audience of why they should vote for you over Sue Steele for uh, city council president in this next election? So I have a family. I have two kids that are going to go through the Troy system here. I have invested in Troy. I'm, you know, creative and I have a lot of ideas on issues and solutions and I'm independent. I'd like to think I'm independent. At least, you know, I don't fall in party lines. When I put lawn signs out, it's both Democratic and Republican, and I've done that multiple times. It's because I believe in people that believe in the city or do work for the city. So I think because of that, I can offer people a fresh perspective, creativity, somebody that can go to City Hall, you know, and City Council and try to do his best for Troy over any other affiliation you might have. That was Elizabeth E. P. Press interviewing Brad Lewis, the Republican candidate for Troy City Council president, who is running against the Democratic candidate, Sue Steele. And we end tonight with a discussion about an award-winning quartet. Andrea, take it away. The friends of Chamber Music Troy welcome the Isadora String Quartet, the winners of the prestigious Banff International String Quartet Competition. I spoke with the director, Barry Schiffman, about the annual competition and the winning quartet, the Isadora String Quartet. Banff competition is part of the Banff Center 
which is a large institution in the Rocky Mountains in the town of Banff that has a particular focus on on the arts, of course. And for decades, the Banff Center was very heavily involved in training all sorts of musicians. Um, And that's where, you know, I got my start and so did so many others. I want to jump right in and and, um, reflect on your comment that it's a very important event for quartets. And, and no doubt it is, I would say, maybe the most important event of its kind in the world for quartets. But I think what makes the Banff International String Quartet so important for the quartets is that it is as important for the audience as it is for the quartets. And that is the, the essence of the success of this competition. So the art form of string quartet relies on presenting the music in front of a living and breathing audience. So we're very blessed at Banff to have this extraordinary place in the Rocky Mountains, surrounded by gorgeous nature, and to have an infrastructure at the Banff Centre, which is one of the largest art centres in Canada, um, to present the competition. And the result of that is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people descend on this mountain town to take in the week-long competition. And as a result, the musicians that are presenting perform in a way that I think is heightened because of the fact that these are just ordinary, wonderful concerts with a full house. We create an environment where the musicians can come and do their best work. And then a jury decides where we're going to invest our resources in our winner, of course. And those resources that we have for the the winning ensemble are vast. This quartet, the Isidore Quartet, amazing group of men. I have to say, I'm, I'm just thrilled that Troy is going to get to hear the Isidore Quartet. This is, um, you know, we always hope that we're going to have spectacular groups in Banff. And I think for the most part, we have. I mean, if you look at our previous winners, you know, the Viano Quartet, the Dover Quartet, the St. Lawrence Quartet, the Miro Quartet, et cetera, et cetera. The Isidore Quartet really captured the imagination of the public when they were there. This quartet, the Isidore amazing group of men very young very young and i think both violinists started picking up a violin at a year and a half yes i've heard crazy stories about that yeah but i i I have to say i'm I'm just thrilled that troy um is going to get to hear the isidore quartet this is um and you're right they were they are very young they were very young just a year ago during during the competition but what i think is interesting is how many concerts they've done and how much they've grown in that year since since winning Banff. It's they've had incredible growth and and opportunity and, and have done a remarkable job of taking full advantage of all of those opportunities. And they just sound beautiful. They sound fantastic. Well I understand that there was quite a reaction from the audience at the end of their final piece. Yes, it always is. Oh, is it? <laughs> okay. It always is. You know, the audience is incredibly enthusiastic. Oh, wonderful. Uh, and, and they they definitely um, choose their winners. Uh, we don't give an audience prize. We never will while I'm there. I'm not because we don't believe in one, but because um, it's not always that the audience agrees um, with what the jury selection is. And so we, our job is to support the jury and support the, the Banff prize but it's always lovely when when the winning group also has the you know obvious support of the of the audience and the way that Isidore did they were they were really favorites from the audience perspective I think we can safely say what would you say was 
made them unique or made them specifically special? I don't like to to add my personal voice because I don't vote in the competition. I like to, to keep a little bit of objectivity. Um, but what I can say about the Isidore is that there there is an uh, an extraordinary amount just of an unusual technical ease. So they're, they're, they're stunningly gifted instrumentalists to begin with. And then there was a kind of generosity in, in how they, they made music together. And there was a real freedom that, uh, that, that was unusual um, and, and a kind of feeling of almost spontaneity. And that was, I thought for me, was quite surprising as a group was so young. Um, and so kind of magic things happen in their interpretations because yeah, because they were so comfortable and at ease on their instruments and had and and had um, this compelling vision to share and were somehow remarkably able to do that. They they studied of, um, at the Juilliard School with uh, Joel Krosnick, who's a dear friend of mine. And actually, I, I studied with Mr. Krosnick when I was in the St. Lawrence Quartet and we worked with the Juilliard Quartet. So I felt, uh, I, I felt quite uh, connected in that sense that they came from the, a similar experience of you know working with a mentor that i had also worked with um and there's a um there's a fund that they have on stage i think you'll soon see these are there are four gifted young men who who love what they're doing and i think that's 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 quite quite special and it shows oh it absolutely does yeah do you think this year they won in 2022 right yeah just over a year ago do you think that the work that they're doing, touring and performing all over the well, I think all over the world, they've been in Europe, yeah. certainly. Yeah, do you think that's going to change anything about them or do you think it'll give them strength? Have you heard them recently? Yes, I did hear them recently. In fact, I, I shared the stage with them um, at the Toronto Summer Music Festival. We, we actually performed together. Uh, I, I've heard them many times. I heard them presented them at, at my festival in Rockport, at the Rockport Chamber Music Festival in Rockport, Massachusetts. Um, so I've heard them a lot, and I've heard many of their broadcasts. And yes, I think that um, we all change. And I think what they're experiencing is exactly what you want, is that uh, the number of concerts, the number of hours rehearsing, the number of shared experiences together, all of that contributes and makes them better. So... Uh, yeah, we're seeing exactly what we thought we would see, which is the quartet is just, um, yeah, it's a much better group than it was even a year ago. What do you think is in the future for them? Oh, well, I, you know, I think the, um, I don't know specifically. I think if they want to continue as a string quartet, um, they're on a fantastic trajectory. I think they could have a, a really long-lived and spectacular career, and we hope, hope that for them. But you know, there's um, there are all sorts of things that will um, will happen to this group that they they know about and that they don't know about, and so it's it's as long as they keep this sense of joy and enthusiasm, the rest will follow. You know, it's very difficult in in the string quartet world, of course, because unless you are lucky enough to get a university residency or or or, or a residency at a large institution, um, your reliance on concert income alone makes it a very very difficult career for longevity so i think look at the careers of the successful ensembles in north america the successful quartets and you will see the the university or conservatory 
quartet in residence positions behind those groups. I know in my own experience, having been in the St. Lawrence for 18 years, it was the appointment at Stanford University that allowed us to continue to grow and to have a financial base and build a home, lay down roots that I think were the reasons why the St. Lawrence was able to continue. Similarly, the Miro Quartet, the Brentano Quartet, the Borromeo Quartet, the Dover Quartet now at Curtis. All these quartets that have the support of those appointments, we hope that the Isidore Quartet will similarly have something that comes along that gives them that support and that base. I think that'll be really crucial for their longevity. Do you think that there's enough support for the arts generally? And why no Canada is probably a little bit different than the United States, maybe a lot different. Do I think there's enough support for the arts? No, there's never enough support for the arts. And where I think we're seeing a decimation um, in art support in both Canada and the United States is in the support of arts education in the public school system. And that's where we're seeing, you know, the investments diminish. And and that is a horrible thing. Uh, we're seeing lots of very good stories of support in the arts in certain areas. I think in the many programs that have been providing support to uh, underrepresented groups, uh, we're seeing the fruits of those labors. And we saw that in Banff. Musicians that had come through different programs that had supported them. It was wonderful to see them on the on the stage doing remarkable things that they were doing. Great to see so much outreach as well. Glad you mentioned the outreach. I think you'll find um, with the Isidore Quartet, this is a group that is passionate about connecting with people. That is a real love, whether it be the audience, whether it be a, um, a home of, of seniors or a, a young public school or whatever it is, they are game to engage those people and they're very gifted at it. So I think that that's um, going to be very exciting for you. Wonderful. Thanks so much for your time. Pleasure. Be well. This has been Andrea Cunliffe speaking with Barry Schiffman of the Banff International String Quartet Competition. Thank you, Andrea. It was quite interesting about those award-winning musicians. Yes, indeed. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm your host, H. Bosch Jr. And I'm your host, Vinnie Polito. We want to thank all of the volunteers who have made this episode possible. Contributors to today's episode are Willie Terry, Mark Dunley, Elizabeth E.P. Press, Andrea Cunliffe, H. Bosch Jr., and myself, Vinnie Polito. Great. And I end, as I always do, dance like there's no one watching, sing like there's no one listening, love like you've never been hurt, and last but not least, you better live like it's heaven on earth. This is the show. I am the host, H. Bosch Jr. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. Music.